Hi there. Thanks for checking out the New Life Speaker Podcast. All our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Lutheran Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. If you don't want to miss out on our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. The money goes towards the seven tradition and helps fund our meeting. You can find a link to this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Ming. I'm an alcoholic. I don't like to stand behind podiums. <laughs> I'm happy to be here tonight. I'm grateful that them asked me to come here and uh, on a Friday night, even though um, I told the guys earlier that, you know, at my age, th- this is late. <laughs> this is late. But, you know, I- I'm just so grateful that I even get to come and speak at all. And I'm here basically today to share with you my experience, strength, and hope to tell you what it was like, what happened, and and what it's like today. And uh, what I can tell you that today, today is hell. (laughs) The worst thing that happened to me today is my internet stopped working. And that is a nightmare, right? (laughs) And that's the worst thing that happened to me today. Compared to what used to be like, yeah, that's not a bad deal, is it? <laughs> right? And, um, and, and you know, I've, I've been around this program for a few days, and not to say that uh, every day is great, especially those early days, but I can tell you that if it wasn't, wasn't for this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would not be alive. And, and I've heard that said a lot in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. But in my case, that, that was true. And um, so how I grew up and how I ended up right before I stepped foot in the Alcoholics Anonymous, I guess we'll kind of shed some light on, on why I just said that. Um, as you could tell, <laughs> I don't look like you, <laughs> right? I'm this little Asian guy, and I grew up, <laughs> I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, in the 70s. And if you know the Deep South, Birmingham is about as deep as it gets. And so that, that's where I grew up. I grew up in, uh, around the, uh, in the suburb of Birmingham, Alabama. And this was in the 70s I was growing up. And, and all those preconceived preconceptions about little Asian kids who studious, that was me. <laughs> that was me. That and uh, it's all true. <laughs> and uh, so I grew up in this little community. It's a very middle class community. You know, my, my parents uh, raised us and gave us what we uh, what we needed, only what we needed, <laughs> nothing of what we wanted. But it, it was a comfortable life, and, and I was studious, because that's what was expected out of me and my brother. And so we grew up in the 70s, and uh, with a uh, bunch of other kids. We went to school together, grew up together, went to Boy Scouts together, 
went to high school together, and uh, I never did anything that would have disappointed my parents. And so in 1978, it was my senior year in high school, right? And up until that point, I'd been a good kid. Uh, all my friends, you know, you know how it is when you become a senior in high school, you think you're a big shot, right? <laughs> We're seniors, and, and so here, here comes our senior year in high school. And my friends at the start of the school year, probably about right now, back in 1978, my friends asked me, hey, you know, you, you've never done anything with us never been to a fall football game, never come out with us, never hang out with us. Why don't you come on out? We're seniors. <laughs> and uh, so I went home and asked my mom if it was okay if I could go out with the guys on Friday night and watch football. And I had some friends on the football team, and they said the same thing. You know, all these years, you never came and watched this play. So my mom said, okay, you know, I've been a good kid all through high school, made great, good grades. She said, fine, go watch a football game. And so on that first Friday night, opening game, the guys come to pick me up. And they picked me up. Uh, it was three of my friends who I grew up with, basically. And they proceeded to head to the uh, local Burger King. And I go, oh, that's good, getting, getting dinner. <laughs> getting dinner and go watch football. And um, so we drove up to the local Burger King, and when we pull up on it, what I saw was a sea of kids <laughs> on, in the parking lot, and cars filled the parking lot. And I go, oh my gosh. <laughs> and and uh, never seen that Burger King look like that before. And it dawned on me that every Friday night, that's what the kids from my high school, that's what they did. They hung out at that Burger King. And during football season, that's where they would be before the football game. And so my friends proceeded to pull up through the drive-thru. And I go, all right, we're getting dinner. We're getting dinner, then we'll go watch the football game. So they pull through the drive-thru, and uh, they got four Cokes, large Cokes. No food. <laughs> and I'm going, what's going on here? No food, no dinner. and. They pulled into a parking slot and they proceeded to pour out half a coke from the from the from the drinks, and then they reached under the seat and pulled out this bottle of Southern Comfort. Okay, and then they filled a half of that cup with Southern Comfort, and so that was that was their beverage. <laughs> that was their beverage of choice, and up until that point, I I, I got a little nervous because. All those kids, I knew most of them. You know, we grew up together, but I've never seen them in that setting before. And you know what was pretty scary to me that night? There were girls there. <laughs> there, were, there were girls there, and I go, oh my gosh. This, I'm, my heart's racing, and I'm really getting very uncomfortable. You know, the kids I grew up with in that car that night, I was okay being in the car with them, but all those kids in the parking lot, even though I see them every day at school, that was not okay. I was out of my comfort zone. I was, what we were calling here, I was uncomfortable in my own skin. So we stayed in the car, and, and 
I started taking a sip of this, and it, you know, it was sweet and a little bitter, and it, was, it wasn't bad. It was kind of tasty, tasty beverage. <laughs> and, and I took several swigs of this uh, Coke and Comfort, and after a while, I felt it. I felt this warmth come over me, this bit of a relaxation, and I just kept drinking because it was a large Coke, right? And I kept drinking this thing, and then uh, after a while, I'm feeling pretty comfortable. I'm laughing, I'm <laughs> laughing to their jokes, and, and guys were coming up to the car, windows rolled down, and I was laughing, talking to them. And then we left the car, and I was completely comfortable. And, and we had our drinks with us, we're drinking Comfort and Coke. And the more I drank, the better I felt, and more comfortable I felt. And pretty soon, I was not self-conscious anymore. I was not self-conscious of what I looked like, and no one else looked like me in, in that parking lot. You got to understand during this period in the 70s, but for those of you who are younger, this is at the end of the Vietnam War. And we, in this country, we were bringing in a lot of the, the Vietnamese refugees. So there were a lot of sentiments, negative sentiments at that time. And you know, if you look like this, you're included in that group. So that made me really uncomfortable. But you know what? Comfort and Coke made it okay. And Comfort and Coke, made that night okay. And pretty soon, I, I was starting to feel a little bit more Caucasian, just like the other kids. <laughs> and the more I drank, the wider I got. <laughs> and by the end of the night, I had blonde hair. I was Caucasian. <laughs> and you know that, so the, the drink worked for me what I could not do for myself. And what happened after that night was, I'm, I don't even remember if we made it to the football game or not, but every Friday night after that, it was Burger King, Comfort and Coke, or sometimes beer with that, and then, what, and then plus or minus the football game. And uh, so that's how my senior year in high school went. I, I found the solution to all my problems. <laughs> and it was a pretty darn good solution and pretty tasty too. And um, and so we graduated, and I went off to the University of Alabama. <laughs> now, you're talking about a deep, a deep South school. If I was a little uncomfortable in high school, oh my gosh, being at Alabama, that was terrorizing. Okay. And uh, I could not function in any social situation without drinking. And, you know, my story includes uh, other chemicals too, but out of respect for Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to stay with alcohol because that was the first uh, chemical that worked for me. And so at Alabama, I was non-functional besides going to classes. Outside of classes, I was not functional without alcohol. And my, uh, one of my very good friends, who, uh, from my high school, who went to Alabama with me. We hung out all the time in the very beginning as freshmen, and he was this tall, good-looking white guy, right? So he was very popular on campus. He went, got invited to all the frat parties and sorority parties, and he wanted me to come along because we were really good friends. And oh my gosh, that was the last place I want to be, fraternity though. And uh, so I couldn't even step foot near that area uh, 
without being just class first. And uh, so that's how college went for me. And then, and then after college, uh, went to more school training and such. And drinking just slowed down a bit because literally I did not have time to drink. And uh, after many years of more school and training, uh, I finally uh, settled into a, a, a real career. Right? This was uh, by then I was maybe uh, 30 years old, maybe, and I got married already. My wife and I had a little a little girl, and then uh, it was just going to work, come back home. And my drinking really took off then because I didn't have to, I didn't have to study, I didn't have to, you know, there, there was nothing. Just going to work and come out. That's it. And um, uh, my wife at that time, it kind of enabled me. It's not her fault, but you know, after all those years, uh, and she finally probably think that I deserve to have the beer, I deserve to have the liquor, and so she stopped for me. <laughs> the basin refrigerator was packed with beer of all different kinds. And, uh, and so my, my alcoholism took off, took off in a huge way. And uh, a, a number of years down the road, uh, other, other chemicals came into the picture and they did the same thing for me. They allowed me to, to be, what I, be what I want. Not who I am, but be what I want. And they allow me to feel comfortable in my own skin, what I can do for myself. And so, essentially, I wanted to change the way I felt because I was never comfortable with that. And, uh, and I needed something from the outside to do that for me because I couldn't change on my own the inside. I just I did not have the tools to do that. And so this went on for many years. And you know what happens after this pattern goes on and on, that is, um, you know, my, my drinking becomes more and more important year by year. That became the mo most important thing as the, as the kids were, you know, starting to grow up. And uh, they took a back seat. They took a back seat because I, can't, I couldn't do without the alcohol. And, uh, you know, my wife took a back seat to my drinking also. And she just kept going with the family. She kept the family together. She raised the kids while I go to work and just maintained. Uh, I had to maintain. I, I could not stop. And even if I wanted to stop, I couldn't stay stop, stop for more than one day. One day later, I'm ready to go again. And, uh, and I reached a point where the book says, where are the jumping off point? And uh, I'm starting to get the shakes. I'm starting to look really bad. I'm, I'm looking awful. People at work were commenting on the way I look. Because I was, uh, you know, right now, I, I'm probably the heaviest I've, I've weighed in years. Uh, but back then, I, I was very, very thin. And not because I'm an Asian guy, because I was just malnourished. And, um, um, and it, it, I got to the, the, that jumping off point where if I drink more, I'm going to die. But I need to drink more because I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. And the crazy thing is, don't let my, my size fool you. I could drink. And despite that amount of alcohol, I could not 
I cannot change the way I feel. And, uh, and, and, and every day when I wake up, I will start over again. You know, the crazy thing about my drinking, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know what a hangover feels like. I do not know. And uh, the next day I could wake up and I could go again. And, uh, but it doesn't matter if I go again or not. It just, it, I'm, it just doesn't change the way I feel. And so I got to the point where I felt I was in despair. I felt hopeless and I was in despair. And you gotta remember that around this time also, there were other chemicals involved. And that made it so much worse. And uh, so I got to the point where I just did not want to wake up anymore. And every morning when I woke up, I go, oh my gosh, I have to do this all over again. And then the next morning, I go, oh my gosh, I woke up again. I have to do it all over again. And got to the point where, you know, death <laughs> seems like it would feel pretty good compared to the way I was feeling every day. Because I, I knew that I had to do it, okay? Um, and, and so I got to the point where I was really suicidal. And uh, uh, one day I wrote a letter addressed to my wife. And I took a gun and I was gonna go do it. <laughs> I was gonna do it, but I didn't wanna, didn't wanna do it at the house. So I left the house and go try to do that. And you know, and um, I don't know what it was back then. Okay, obviously I didn't pull the trigger. I'm here, and um, I don't know what it was. But today I know that it was just by the grace of God. Okay, because it <laughs> it was it was there. The finger was on the trigger. And what happened after that was someone saw me. Someone saw me. And, uh, and maybe that stopped it. And then I ended up um, facing the police and then went to the emergency room at the same place I worked. <laughs> How embarrassing is that? And uh, so I'm sitting in the emergency room and they're going to help me go, Sam. <laughs> and they, they, they will me to the back of the place pull the curtains, trying to figure out what to do with me. And then I go up to the intensive care unit, same thing, stick me, stick me off to the side somewhere, close a curtain, trying to figure out what to do with me. And I don't know how long I was there in the intensive care unit, but apparently during that time I was there, between the docs there, uh, my colleagues and my wife, they, they figured out a place to take me to, down in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, when I came to in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, it was several days later. And I did not know how I got there. I had to look on my luggage. It's like, all right, Delta Airlines. <laughs> That's how I got here. <laughs> I had no recollection of any of that. So I'm here, I'm in rehab. And uh, day by day, I physically, I felt better. And uh, I was almost there for five months. If you, if you, put a gun to your head, you get to stay in rehab for four to five months. <laughs> and that was me. And by the time I got out of there, guys, I'll tell you, physically I was feeling great. I gained a lot of weight. Uh, my, my genes wouldn't come together. So I was eating, 
gaining weight back and uh, my head was strong, a little bit tighter by then. I got a head full of AA. I loved the guys, I loved AA. And I went home and uh, I, I, I'm a good, you gotta remember, I'm a good student, right? I, I do my homework, I'm a good homework doer. <laughs> so I went home and I did exactly what rehab told me to do. Get a sponsor, go to meetings and, and do aftercare. And I did all that, I did all that. And at that time, I, I complied with the directions. I went to AA. You know why I went to AA? Not because I'm, I'm embracing recovery. It's not like I'm embracing 12-step recovery. Because the truth of the matter was, I wasn't. Okay. I went to AA because in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was the only place where I did not have to feel shame, guilt, or embarrassment, because you guys didn't judge me. You don't. You don't give a damn what I look like. You don't care what my what I did in the past either. Okay. You don't. You don't care whether I, I put a gun to my own head or not. You just welcome me and just say keep coming back. And that's why I kept going back to Alcoholics Sounds because those rooms were the only place in town where I felt safe and unjudged. Everywhere else, including the gas station, I'm looking around, <laughs> make sure no one pulled up that I knew, because I sober up in, in Omaha. Omaha is a, a little big town, is what they call it, and I knew a lot of people there, and um, I couldn't even go to the grocery store, but I could go to AA. Though. And so that's why I went to AA. My sponsor and I we went through the steps. I was not very honest with them. I didn't clean house. But I enjoy the fellowship. I love the fellowship. And um, so a few years later, I went back to rehab, <laughs> a different one. And this time I stayed only four weeks. And, uh, and, and, and I'm sitting in that little rehab in the middle of Nebraska going, how did I end, end up back in a place like this? And the first time I had some consequences. The second time, it multiplied exponentially. Okay, that's the, the wreckage of our past. The wife, the first time, was very supportive. Oh, you're so brave to go through this. I'm so proud of you, honey. That kind of stuff, you know? The second time is, I'm divorcing you. <laughs> right? I'm divorced, I'm tired of this. And uh, so I'm sitting in the rehab. Oh my gosh, what just happened to my life? Like, I thought I had recovery, what happened? And, uh, and I couldn't figure it out. I did not know what the solution, I didn't know how you guys stay sober. I didn't know how you stay sober for sometimes years, if not decades, and, and you're perfectly happy doing it, and you're laughing in these meetings. I could not figure that part out. But one day, the AA sponsor that I had at the time, he and his friend, uh, were on their Harley and they were just coming back from Sturgis Sturgis is north of Nebraska and uh, they just came back from Sturgis so they swung by this little rehab on their way back to Omaha to visit me the same Sunday my wife brought the kids to see me so it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon gorgeous and uh, my sponsor and his buddy they rolled in and they spent the afternoon with me visiting my wife was there cold as ice, <laughs> right? 
she could just kill me with her looks. And I spent some time with the kids. And then uh, my sponsor and his buddy rode away in the afternoon, a beautiful sunset against her back, heading east back to Omaha, and I'm sitting there, <laughs> and my wife is there pissed, right? And, I'm <laughs> and right at that moment, right at that moment, I would have given anything, anything to be like those guys, anything. To be carefree, to have long-term sobriety, to be a functional, happy member of society, family, workplace, on friggin' Harleys, having a good time. And I did not know how they did that. And so what I determined at that time, and, and I, did it, I did it out of desperation. When I couldn't figure out what the solution was, I decided that maybe I'm just gonna find out what these guys are doing. I wanna be like them, so I'm gonna find out what they're doing, and do what they're doing. And so I left that rehab, and uh, I was expecting um, to be served papers. And I figured, you know what, I lost another career. She wants a divorce. She's going to take the kids and everything we have at the time, probably going to go to her because, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I just came from rehab. There's no way, you know, the judge is going to give me anything. And so at that time, I'm still in despair. I'm still, I still feel hopeless. But I thought, I just thought, if I could be happy like these guys, uh, I might be just okay. Single, divorce, no kids, no career. If I could be happy like them, I think I'll be okay. Because I've heard stories in these rooms about people who lost everything, but they stay sober and they were happy, joyous, and free. And so I needed to find out how people do that because that's about to happen to me. <laughs> And uh, so I, I started following these guys around. Not just one hour meeting, but I, they picked me up and took me to things that they were doing outside of this one hour meeting. And I found out that I'm the only one who wasn't doing what they're doing. <laughs> what they were doing was they were working with others, they were doing service work, they were spending a lot of time with each other, talking about steps, working on steps, and so by following them around, I ended up volunteering at the, the Open Door Mission for two years now, because that's what they were doing. And then I, I, I volunteered at Salvation Army, and uh, I met with my sponsor. He told me, when you get out this time, we're going to get to the bottom of this, and we're going to clean house. That's what he said, we're going to clean house. And I didn't know what that clean house meant, but what it meant was that we're gonna go back through the steps and we're gonna do thorough steps, every single one of them. And so that's exactly what we did. And I didn't know at that time that, that house cleaning that people talk about all the time, it was this house up here. And uh, so we proceeded to do the steps again and I got very brutally honest with them. And, uh, uh, and, and as we, the first time I came back from treatment, I don't think I even believe in step one, right? I thought this was a purely human body kind of thing. You know, you drink enough and you take enough dope, you're gonna feel this way. I thought for sure it was a physiologic human body kind of deal. 
that I didn't know about this heart. So I didn't even believe that I was powerless without God. Yeah, my life might be a little unmanageable, <laughs> but I'm not powerless. I've got to where I got to in my career out of sheer willpower and determination. Because frankly, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. But out of self-will and determination, I got to where I wanted to go. And I thought that was what it was going to take. It did not work. And uh, so I, I had no answers. And so when I came back after the second rehab, I came to believe that I was powerless about alcohol. Because when I'm stone cold sober, I still went and put alcohol in my body. Okay, That's my insanity, that I keep putting the same thing in my body, knowing full well that every time I do that, I'm going to feel exactly the same way. Crappy, right? That's my kind of insanity. I don't know about yours. And so I came to believe that I was powerless about that. And yet my life is still unmanageable. And then they tell me that you got to hang on. you you got to develop this, this idea about a higher power, about maybe higher power, about God, whatever. And, and I couldn't wrap my head around it at that time. Not a chance. Not a friggin' chance. Because I hadn't done any house cleaning. My house was so cluttered with garbage that I can't even, I can't even think straight of what I'm supposed to do next. How am I supposed to appreciate this idea of higher power or God? And But my sponsor told me at that time that you don't have to believe in that, in, especially in the 12 by 12. Bill tells us that. We don't have to believe in God, right, in the beginning. And so he said that, just not yourself, please. Yeah, just not yourself. And so at that time, I believed that those guys who, who I got to know, I believed that they believed that there was a God. And so that was good enough for me, even though I couldn't wrap my head around it. And then the third step, I couldn't, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't understand that step either. And then he tells me, it doesn't say much, does it? I mean, what are you trying to make of step three anyway? And then he said, read that again. What, what did Bill say? He, he just said, made a decision. That's all he said. Made a decision. He never said anything about, oh, now you understand with what this heart is. Never said that. Made a decision. Just like I made a decision at that time to go to those meetings, to follow these guys around, to go volunteer at the mission. Just like tonight, I made a decision that I was not going to say no. I was going to come here and share my experience, strength, and hope. I made those decisions. Step three was the same way. All I did was make a decision. <laughs> and then we proceeded to do the inventory. Right? And the first time when I did the inventory, this is just this is so pathetic. <laughs> okay. The first time I did the fourth step and the fifth step with my sponsor at the time, I lost a career. I, I was a partner, a, a full senior partner in a group, and they want me to resign. And I go, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you tell me that I need to resign? And so my whole motivation at that time 
because I need some references. <laughs> I need some serious references because when I go look for that next job, I need to have these guys write me something decent. And so that was my motive for uh, putting some of these names on paper, okay? And, and eventually going to make amends to them so I could stay on their good side so when I need to, I could ask them for references. That was my motive. It was a really bad motive. And then, um, uh, so my house never got cleaned, okay? And uh, I, I never grew spiritually in this program. I always had a, a self-centered motive, even doing these steps. Now, how bad is that? And, uh, uh, and so I, never, I was never able to make that conscious contact with God. I was never, to, never was able to effectively work with others. Okay? And my prayer and meditation at that time was a sham. It was a sham. Okay? Again, remembering that I'm a good student, I do my homework well. And so my prayer was memorized passages from the book, the third step prayer. I memorized that thing, I said that thing, like I'm repeating homework, okay? So I have no connections to anything in here. It was still all up here. That's my life. That's how I was brought up, that's how I was trained. It was all cerebral up here. Nothing here, I have nothing here. And so when I came back from that final rehab, and my sponsor at that time told me, we're gonna clean house. And that's exactly what we did. We truly cleaned house. And in six and seven, we uh, went about to do something about it. You know, we, we laid my assets and liability out in the open for all to see. And then now we're gonna go do something about it. It's not all about the, the crappy stuff I did. It's about the good stuff too. And we laid it all out there and uh, now we're going to proceed to do something about it. And, it, it, you know, the, the, the house cleaning is bit by bit, okay, for, my, for this attic up here. And uh, over time, it became more and more clear. And at some point, not right away, though, it didn't happen overnight. At some point, my head was clear enough where I could actually start looking at myself. Instead of looking at all of you, looking at my former partners and former institutions and start pointing fingers. How could you guys be so cruel? How could you be, guys be so unkind and unloving, right? I was finally able to look in here and go, oh wow, okay, that, that, that's, <laughs> I get it. And even my wife, even my wife, you know, I, I could not understand why she would abandon me. And then when I would, and when I did a thorough house clean, I could see, I could see the view from her eyes, and that part is chilling. Of all the wreckage of my past, the career, the friends I hurt, the colleagues I hurt, the wife bit. That is a part that still gives me goosebumps today. Okay. And uh, so as a result of thoroughly working these steps and thorough house cleaning, and I was just finally able to 
start growing in this program in a spiritual way. I was finally able to, this was many years down the road, not even a couple of weeks down the road, a couple of months, a couple of years down the road, I could finally start to appreciate what my higher power might be. And right at that point, my recovery took a completely different trajectory. It's pretty cool, actually. Okay. And, uh, and then once that happened, here I go, off in this direction, making connection with my higher power. And so what happened at the end was that the wife never served the paper. Now, some of you have seen her <laughs> at the picnic, <laughs> this meeting. So at one time, when I came back from this second rehab and she told me she was going to serve me the papers, she said, that AA crap, that's your deal. I will have nothing to do with it. And I hope you go to it for your own sake. And today she can't get enough of that picnic. <laughs> and uh, and my, my kids, those little kids that she brought that one Sunday to visit me when my sponsor was there also, they grew up. They grew up. And, and so today, um, my story didn't get any better. My story stayed the same, okay, and that's my story. But my recovery, okay, and my future here keeps changing, keeps changing. And what I've learned is that I've learned that I have to keep my house pretty clean. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's sparkly clean, <laughs> but it's pretty darn clean. Clean enough where I could think straight, that I could continue to, to stay connected with my God and you all. And I just keep growing spiritually in this program and, and reach out and help others behind me. And, uh, uh, but a lot of good things happen too in my recovery. And what I need to do is trust God, trust you guys, and, and, and not hang on too tight and bring it down from here to here. And I've been taking, you know, my recovery is kind of like taking the, uh, the floaty ride down the river, you know, <laughs> in a water park. Just kind of go wherever that damn thing takes you. And, uh, and, and for a lot of years now, that's what I've been doing. And my career path <laughs> is kind of like this. It took me to so many different places. And eventually that winding river ride <laughs> brought me to Berks County, Pennsylvania. This was a fluke. I showed up here about uh, I don't know, almost about 11 years ago, maybe, and I came here by myself. Okay, and um, and but I also knew because of what I've been taught in this program that I need you guys. I need you all. I came here by myself before my wife moved here from uh, Nebraska. And I knew I needed you guys. I left my sponsor. I left my, all my sponsees back home. I have nothing here. No one knows me yet. And uh, I rolled into town on a Friday night. On a Friday night, I was exhausted. Exhausted. And I threw my stuff in that little crappy apartment I rented temporarily. And I went looking for meetings. It's what meeting I found. <laughs> this one.
I found this meeting on a Friday night when this was still over at the church, at the church down the street here. And I met a guy with a cowboy hat. I met a bunch of other guys. And then every night after, and I found this building, and I found that there were meetings here downstairs. So I went to a meeting every night after I got off of work. I raised my hand and then introduced myself as new. And uh, guys started coming up to me. Because I needed that connection, I needed, uh, I needed you guys. And within that first week, I met a bunch of guys. And uh, some of those guys are still around. They're still kind of hanging out. And uh, because you know what? This disease stays on in my head all the time. This disease in my head, I kind of look at it like it's a furnace, like a water furnace, a gas furnace. It's got a pilot light on it, right? That's how it works. It's got that pilot light always on it. And all we need to do is turn the knob up and it goes up. That pilot light is still there. I know it. I feel it. But my job is to grow spiritually in this program so that that knob doesn't get turned up. And for that to happen, I gotta stay connected and connected to my higher power. And for me to connect to my higher power means that I gotta stay connected to you. I gotta stay connected to you and I gotta say yes. I can't say no. Because if I start to say no, uh, it's probably not. Are you kidding? <laughs> Eight o'clock? <laughs> no way. <laughs> now, pretty soon, uh, you guys aren't going to see me around town anymore. You guys aren't going to see me at Wilshire anymore. All right, that's going to what happened. That knob just gets turned up. It turned up. And then that furnace goes up. And for me, when I drink, I want to kill myself. That's what I want to do. <laughs> Eventually, I want to go kill myself. Because that's where my disease takes me. And so this is not a bad deal. When today I'm sober, and the worst thing that happened today is my internet didn't work. That's pretty good. And, you know, a lot of good things. I, I, my wife never left me. She, she loves Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I got to watch my kids grow up. I got to watch them grow up. And they're both young adults now. I got to walk my daughter down the aisle in 2019, and I'm about to see my son get married in December. It's pretty good, huh? And I know you are. That's the cool thing. But you know, what I was taught a long, long time ago is that this is freedom. This right here. That people are freedom. I love you guys, and I love that I've got to know some of you so well, but this is freedom. My recovery has to be dependent on a power greater than myself. I demonstrated that 11 years ago. Like all of a sudden, the people I thought I would grow old with in recovery, just like that overnight, gone. Because I came here. Like, and I, have to, I have to make new friends here. And so I have to be dependent on a power greater than myself. And that night, I'm driving down Penn Avenue, looking for this meeting, and I'm praying. I'm praying to God. I go, God, what in the world am I doing here? Why am I here in Pennsylvania? 
and then after this meeting, I call my sponsor up in Omaha. I go, I hate this place. Those guys do things all wrong. <laughs> well, they call, they call those things coins. We don't call them coins. They're not coins. They're chips. <laughs> and he goes, just go to bed. <laughs> so this journey has been has not has not been bad at all. It's been it's been beautiful. And, and you guys are beautiful. And uh, I, I hope I wish you all the best. Stay plugged in, stay active, and and don't say no. That's all. Good. Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speaker Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through the seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link in the description below, or they can also be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when we upload a new episode. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh.